welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We're going to find four profound verses. These verses give a comprehensive overview of what we've been studying in this poem by Solomon since verse 1. Verses 1 through 6, if you remember, told us or call us to live sober in spirit Verses 7 through 10 then invite us to live patiently in spirit. And I believe verses 11 through 14 are given to remind us to live humbly in spirit, accepting every circumstance, any troubling circumstance, as a work in the hands of a sovereign and mighty God. As we read Job earlier, he, he refused to curse the, the name of the Lord, uh, even as he suffered loss of all things, even later in that passage, his own health. We are to live in the Spirit. And if I were to ask to supply just a one-sentence summary of this, this poem that we will complete today, verses 1 through 14, it would be this. God is pleased with the one who contemplates eternity, for he or she is able to endure the loss of all things without retaliating against God and man. I'll read that again. God is pleased with the one who contemplates eternity, for he or she is able to endure the loss of all things without retaliating against God or man. Without, without question, the Old Testament exemplar, the supreme example of enduring loss, is Job. He endured much, yet he was blameless before the Lord. He lived soberly and wisely, as our poem tells us. And when he did suddenly lose everything, he did not withhold his praises from God. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The divine example of enduring loss is the co-eternal, the pre-existent Son of God, who, although He existed in the form of God, He emptied Himself taking the form of a bondservant, and being made into the likeness of man. You'll find that in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 7. The eternal Son of God emptied Himself. Uh, So through the incarnation, the eternal Christ set aside His privileges uh, of being divine. In becoming flesh, He conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin... And, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What an example. Jesus set aside and endured loss of all things that we might gain eternal life through Him. Therefore, 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 concludes, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you through His poverty might become rich. I'm not going to assume everyone here has has heard the acronym explaining God's grace, G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. And you receive grace, you receive God's grace, not through merit of your own, not through things that you have done yourself, but only through trusting that the sinless Son of God... Christ himself was punished on the cross and died for your sins. He then rose from the dead on the third day. Having embraced this truth, having accepted this, having having believed the truths about Christ, we're assured from Scripture that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Saved. That is why Christ came uh, to be born and to die is to save us from our sins. That, that is the good news. That's, that's what the word gospel means. The good news. And, and this good news imparts to your heart and your mind a, a new paradigm. Completely, completely fresh model of thought. An eternal perspective. A, a new framework that gives us assurance that, that this temporal frustration that we experience, or, or this temporal dissatisfaction or discouragement that we endure call, called life, it's someday going to be exchanged for a crown where we will enjoy in heaven uh, with Christ himself on a new earth uh, the righteousness of Christ, where righteousness dwells. We have a great future, a great future ahead of us. Job suffered loss. Jesus endured loss. And, and the Apostle Paul well, says in Philippians chapter 3, he says, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived through the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. God's riches at Christ's expense. That is the grace of God. So, none of these examples... You have Job, Jesus, Paul. None of them hesitated, even under enormous stresses, under enormous pressure, uh, none hesitated to endure loss in the world and still lift their names uh, and their praises uh, to God in praise. Uh, By God's goodness, by His grace, 
we probably will never have to experience such a level of, of loss and suffering in our lives. Um, we don't know the future. This passage is clear about that today. Uh, but most of us will likely, to, uh, likely continue to experience some pretty nice things, some really nice things during our short stay here on earth. So Solomon repeatedly has, has emphasized in this, in this book called Ecclesiastes, enjoy the fruit of your labor. Enjoy what God gives you day to day and, uh, and rejoice and praise Him. Yet the wisdom of Solomon, the wisdom of the Word strengthens so that our trust in God does not hinge on those circumstances. So, so that our confidence in God doesn't always hinge on our personal experience. It should not matter whether we are experiencing prosperity or whether we are enduring persecution, both have come from the hand of God. Both are permitted and allowed by Him. And regardless of what the future holds, no matter what tomorrow brings, the truth contained in this passage today, it programs our spirits. It prepares our spirits to humbly respond, Blessed be the name of the Lord I'm reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 7, beginning in verse 11. Wisdom, along with an inheritance, is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection, just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. Consider the work of God. For who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the days of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other, so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. That last sentence gives us assurance that no man knows what tomorrow will bring. Nobody knows what will come after today. Uh, Ecclesiastes really ought to put the fortune tellers completely out of business. Ought to put them out of business entirely. Absolutely no one besides God knows what tomorrow holds. Only God knows the future. Have you ever noticed that the, the clairvoyance, those types of people, not suggesting that you've maybe visited one, have you ever noticed how, how they always say tomorrow is going to be healthy, wealthy, wise, all good things, all good things, but they can't, can't even see next Wednesday's lotto numbers? You ever thought of that? Yeah, never. They can never come up with those. You know, people ought to find that a little bit suspicious, a little bit suspicious. They can never deliver from the adversity of tomorrow. But the wisdom of God, oh, it always delivers. Wisdom delivers every time. Proverbs 2 verse 6 says, For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. In Scripture, the Word of God. It's equated with the wisdom that comes directly from God's mouth. The collection of scriptures, 66 books. 
that together that collection, we, we call it the Bible, the book, it's God speaking to us. It's Him communicating to us. You, you can find this principle clearly evident. You look at Psalm 119, at many other places throughout Scripture. And Jesus said in Matthew 4, verse 4, He goes, It is written, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Pastor Weiler was speaking this morning about, uh, in Bible Life Group about the bread of life and how Christ has said that He has come down from heaven and He is the bread of life. Uh, we are to live on the Word that has become flesh, the Word that is written, and we live on, live on it as it proceeds exactly out of the mouth of God. There, Jesus, He is quoting Deuteronomy. Quoting the Old Testament. Ultimately then, knowledge and understanding, knowledge and understanding of God's Word, that is the divine source of wisdom. God's Word, knowledge of God's Word is the divine source of wisdom. And Solomon says in verse 12 that such wisdom will preserve your life. Think about that. It will preserve your life. That that is both present and future, folks. The Word of God will preserve your life. When heeded and obeyed, the Word of God will generally keep you out of prison. It will strengthen your marriage if you will listen to it. It will provide emotional comfort when you are distressed. The Word of God preserves your life. There's a pastor out in Dallas, uh, Robert Jeffress. And uh, he's at First Baptist Dallas. Really, really good preacher, large church out there. But he has said uh, on, on different occasions that the, if, you, if you need counseling, the very best counseling that you can get for your life, generally, at least, the very best counseling is on Sunday morning from the Bible in church. That's where you get your counseling. The Word of God will preserve your life. It will provide the emotional stability that you need day to day to endure every curveball that gets thrown at you, and they will come. There will be curveballs. So Scripture, it also imparts eternal life. It is through the Word of God, hearing the Word of God proclaimed, uh, through which we are born again. James 1.18 says, In an exercise of His will, God brought us forth. Literally there, God gave birth to us. You're born again. In an exercise of God's will, uh, God brought us forth by the word of truth. By hearing the word of truth, the word of God, that is how we are born again. The Holy Spirit works in our heart, imparts the word of truth to us. And it is through this, this scriptural knowledge and this understanding that we come to know God and by which we worship Him intelligently with our minds. Through the word of God, through the knowledge and wisdom of God's word, we can worship our God intelligently. This book the, the, the Bible, which you're holding in your hands right now, this, 
book. It, it is truly everything to Christians. It's everything for our life. Everything that we need is in the Bible. There's, folks, there, there's no life without it. Without the Scriptures, there's only death. You cannot save yourself. You cannot, you cannot make up enough good works or, or uh, processes or, or other things in your mind in order to give yourself eternal life. It's only bestowed through the Scriptures and by the prophets. There's only death without the Word. Therefore, when verse, when verse 11 states that wisdom, along with an inheritance, is good and an advantage to those who see the sun, for wisdom is protection, just as money is protection, but the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors, that wisdom that Solomon is referring to there, it isn't just common sense. Solomon isn't speaking about common, common sense there. Spiritual wisdom that preserves the life, is, it's a comprehensive knowledge and an application of God's word, what he has spoken to our lives. Wisdom is a, a hearing and an understanding and an application of God's word to our lives. That's, that's what wisdom is. Last week, I briefly compared living in the flesh versus living in the spirit. I didn't provide sufficient explanation for, for what those phrases mean. Living, or, or some, some places you see walking in the flesh, living or walking in the flesh, that's, that's easier for us to grasp. We usually can, can get that. We can flush that out. Our flesh, it, it pursues a path through life according to physical and emotional urges. It's when the flesh pursues a path through life according to physical and emotional urges. Sexual drive, hunger, materialism. Things we feel we need. And, and it describes decisions that we make uh, that, that hinge solely on feelings and emotions. Things that we feel, thing that we, things that we desire. People will say, well, I, I feel this decision is right. I just feel it's right. And my gut is telling me, this is okay what I'm doing. Or, or, or I get a tingly sensation. When I hold her hand, I get, a, I get a tingly sensation. Oh, you might experience a tingly sensation. You might, you might. But that alone, by itself, does not suggest you should marry her. Getting goosebumps bumps on your arms is not an indication that God approves. Unbelievers get goosebumps on their arms. Unbelievers get tingly sensations. That is not a life lived in the spirit. That is a life lived in the flesh when you base your decisions solely on emotions and feelings. Boy, many people have been, have been taught wrongly to believe that they are within the will of God 
if everything just feels right. Oh, I got a lot of just peace about this, and and it, it, it it's a life governed by feelings, a life governed by emotions, things that people, a gut instinct. And some people think that is highly spiritual, that I just feel all right about whatever decision I make. That is not spiritual. Folks, that is fleshly. That is fleshly. In contrast to life in the flesh is life in the Spirit, or walking in the Spirit. And living in the Spirit involves decisions and actions that are governed by and in harmony with God's Word. Living in the Spirit involves decisions and actions governed by and in harmony with God's Word. That is why it's called, in in Ephesians, the sword of the Spirit. The Word is the sword of the Spirit. To live in the Spirit, or, or to walk in the Spirit, in order to do that, you need to know your Bible. You have to know what it says then the Word of God becomes your primary counsel. It supersedes feelings. It's at a higher threshold than feelings. Spiritual decisions are made in harmony with scriptural wisdom. That's, being, that, that's a spiritual life. And this is what it means to live in the Spirit. Galatians 5 verse 16 says, Walk in the Spirit and you will not carry out the lusts or desires of the flesh. Here's an example. You all want an example? Nod your heads, yes. Here's one example that could apply to a young woman. You have to ask yourself, is your fiancé a genuine Christian? Because we're not to be unequally yoked, correct? Does he display evidence of a life lived in harmony with the Word of God? Does he consistently show that? Does he have Christian friends? Does he go to church regularly? Does he understand not forsaking the assembly of the saints? Has he always shown concern for your purity? Are all the related boxes checked? Does it seem... Does it seem the scriptural elements of what a relationship should look like according to the will of God, um, does it seem they're all in place? Oh, good, good. Folks, that is wisdom. That's wisdom being applied. Does he give you goosebumps? Is he handsome? Is he, is he, does he, is he successful? Oh, great. That, that, that's even better. You know, let, let's get some rings on those fingers. That's okay. But feelings and emotions do not supersede the word of God um, on, our, on our priorities. Pursuing a, a, a life governed by God's word, that, that is living in the spirit. That is the spiritual walk. A life in harmony with God's word. Jesus epitomized this. Um, He was a perfect example of walking in the Spirit when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. When the Bible says that Jesus was led by the Spirit and 
filled with the Spirit when he went into the wilderness, driven by the Spirit, Spirit into the wilderness. And consequently, what was Jesus' reaction when tempted by Satan? Or what were his responses when tempted by Satan? Jesus replied the same thing three times. It is written, it is written, it is written. Depart from me, Satan. Jesus, when he was walking in the Spirit, always referenced back to what was written. That's wisdom. That is the spiritual walk, living a life that is in harmony with God's Word. Folks, a spiritual life, living spiritual, it's not an obscure and obtuse idea that's hard to grasp or get your, get your, get your thoughts around. Nor is it a life governed by goosebumps. Living by the Spirit is concrete. It's living in harmony with what the Word of God says. That's the spiritual life. Live in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. With all that in mind, kind of a little segue there, with all that in mind, look at verse 11. Wisdom, along with an inheritance, is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. In view of verse 12, this inheritance, it appears to be some kind of cold currency, some kind of money, uh, some cash. And when a person comes into some money, and, and you combine that with divine wisdom, oh, that's good. That is good. That is an advantage living under the sun. Solomon sees that as a very positive development. But without wisdom, what is money? Oh, it's a disaster. Without wisdom, it will ruin a person. Life can become an inheritance, a large inheritance can become a complete disaster for someone who hasn't, hasn't had to share in building that estate. And like about 70% of lottery winners, this is according to Reader's Digest now, about 70% of, like, I don't know, are they true anymore? Is anything true? The Word of God is true. But it's reported that like 70% of lottery winners, a foolish heir, they will lose, they will lose most of it in five years. In five years, most, most lottery winners, the money is gone because they were never trained in wisdom. Come into a lot of money. Um, this is why Solomon said in chapter 2, verse 21, when there is a man who has labored with wisdom, and then he leaves his estate to one who has not labored with him, oh, he refers to that as a vanity and a great evil, remember? It's like, oh, that's, that's not good. Not good at all. But a financial windfall of some kind combined with wisdom, oh, that can be a good thing. That can be a good thing. That's an advantage for this life under the sun. And if you are wise, you will handle money well, according to God's word, using God's wisdom. And if you're truly wise, you might even create your own windfall. Your own windfall uh, financially. Uh, we just had the children, uh, children, youth group. 
that just studied through Dave Ramsey's uh, foundations, yeah, for, for investing and saving in life. And, and our youth group, ages 12 to 18, just finished that book. And uh, begin investing small fractions of your income. Be, be generous with the rest. And history, re, history records that you will retire comfortably. Start when you're young, put a little bit away, be generous with the rest. Chapter 11 will teach us when we get there in Ecclesiastes, cast your bread on the surface of the waters for you will find it after many days and divide your portion into seven and eight. That is wisdom about investing for your future. It's God's wisdom. If you have more time than you do money, I don't make a lot of money, but I got time, buy a house cheap, fix it up. In time, sell it. Buy another house cheap. Fix it up. In time, sell it. You, you can complete that cycle. Even the layman uh, carpenter can complete, complete that cycle in about five times in his lifetime. Waiting on the market and being patient. Get advice from people who've done it. Create your own financial windfall. Money with wisdom can be good. It can be good. A truly wise person doesn't sit around and wait on an inheritance. That, that's, not, that's not a wise thing to do. But an inheritance with wisdom, oh, that can be good. That can be good. And verse 12 says, wisdom is protection, just as money is protection. Well, what do you think of that? Huh? Christians were always supposed to say, ah, oh, money, I don't need that dirty money, dirty, dirty money. The scripture really doesn't uh, it says beware of wealth, but it doesn't really say you're supposed to pursue it, all right? Or pursue, uh, um, not wealth, but, but uh, poverty, excuse me. Wealth is protection. Wealth is protection. But wisdom says build a six-month emergency fund. Put some money away. Save before you park something with chrome pipes in your driveway. Right? That is wisdom, Proverbs 6. That is how wisdom provides protection. You make wise decisions through your life financially. Yet money is also protection. Money can be protection. It is an ultimate protection because calamity can strike at any time. But there is a certain level of protection knowing that you can cover a few months' expenses until you get back on your feet again. There's a certain amount of peace in recognizing that you can handle expenses for a little while before you, um, before you come into dire situations. You can replace a form of transportation uh, without having to go into extreme debt in order to do so. Uh, what wisdom would there be in making Financial, uh, financial decisions that harm us. Why would anybody do that? There's no wisdom in that to be, make life needlessly hard. Douglas O'Donnell writes that money has its advantages. If you have money, when adversity strikes, the loss of a job, a sputtering economy, a natural disaster, you have some shelter and security. Similarly, wisdom protects. 
The wise know how to navigate through life's deep and difficult waters. Folks, Ecclesiastes is incredibly practical material. Very, very practical for daily life. Wisdom with money offers protection. In fact, both are implied in the Hebrew as providing a shadow. You probably have a footnote there. Protection is, is, is the word shadow. And they both kind of serve like that umbrella. That umbrella of protection that you, you dip under when life starts to rain. But one is still better. One is still better. Halfway through verse 12. That, that term you see there, advantage. It in, indicates a qualitative advantage. It implies that one is superior, actually far more favorable than the other. It says the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. The knowledge that comes with wisdom preserves your life now and in the future. Money alone by itself, without wisdom, cannot do that. It cannot do that. You can lose money and still survive on wisdom. But if you lose wisdom, your life reverts back to the fool. No matter how much money you have, there's no protection in money alone And when oppression comes, the fool, as we saw earlier last week, the fool makes irrational mistakes, ones that destroy his own heart. And between the two, if there is one that we cannot afford to lose, it's wisdom. Wisdom is better. Money is good. There's a certain certain level of protection with money. But wisdom is better because you aren't subject to losing it in the same ways that you are money. The moral of the story? Hold tighter to your wisdom than you do to your money. Don't lose your wisdom. You can't afford to live without it, folks. Especially when you face the crook in the lot. Anybody ever heard of the crook in the lot? I almost titled this message, The Crook in the Lot. The lot being your portion in life. What you experience, what you encounter, what you endure. The crook in the lot is Job. Job chapter 1. When all of life comes crashing down. It became Job's lot in life. And there became a crook in it. We see it in verse 13 says, consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has bent? Boy, kind of hopeless there. All the money in the world could not save Job in his great day of adversity. Wealth and health were gone in an instant. And all that Job had to fall back on? wisdom wisdom in knowledge of what he knew about who God is 
a famed Scottish preacher named Thomas Boston. You ever heard of him? He wrote a sermon about this. He titled it, The Crook in the Lot. Boy, Boston was a man of many sorrows. Many sorrows. His ministry was plagued with discouragement. His health was poor. His wife suffered chronic illness both in mind and in body. They lost six of their ten children. The name of one boy was Ebenezer, which means the Lord has helped us. But Ebenezer tragically died. In an act of faith, uh, Thomas Boston deliberated. Do I name another son Ebenezer? And by an act of faith, Boston named his next son Ebenezer as well. The Lord has helped us. Yet that child too became sickly. And despite the urgent prayers of his parents, he never recovered. And that grieving father wrote of Ebenezer in his memoirs. Wow. Remind me of Job. He wrote, It pleased the Lord that he also was removed from me. How many of us could do that at the loss of a second Ebenezer? After suffering such a heavy loss, many people would have been tempted to shake their fist at God, complain to Him, accuse Him of wrongdoing, to abandon their faith, or at least if you're a minister, you know, take some time off. Maybe I'll check out for a while. This isn't working so good. But that's not what Thomas Boston did. He believed in the goodness as well as the sovereignty of God. So rather than turning away from the Lord during his time of trial, he turned to the Lord in worship and for comfort. One of the last works that he, that he ever did in his life was a sermon. <laughs> classic sermon titled, The Crook in the Lot, is based on this command in Ecclesiastes 7 verse 13 right here, consider the work of God, who can make straight what he has made crooked. And in his famous sermon, Boston made the following observations about life, quote, ready for this? In that train or course of events, Some fall out cross to us and against the grain. And these make the crook in our lot. While we are here, there will be cross events as well as agreeable ones in our lot and condition. Sometimes things are softly and agreeable gliding on us. By and by, there is some, but by and by, there is some incident which alters that course grates us and pains us. Everybody's lot in this world has some crook in it. And in speaking of the fallen world, he concludes this, there is no perfection here. There's no lot out of heaven without a crook. Boy, when life brought a crook to Job, what did he do? 
Boy, he declared, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Folks, money is protection, but wisdom preserves the life. Especially when you come face to face with the crook in the lot. Appropriately, Solomon's poem concludes in this way. He says, in the day of prosperity, be happy. Do that. Be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. Solomon had surely read the book of Job. Surely he had seen this. And, and, and both assure that God is completely sovereign and God is completely good even when there's a crook in the lot. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Philip, Philip Riken writes this, It is impossible for us to predict what will happen in coming days. As the preacher says, man may not find out anything that will be after him. We have no way of knowing whether the coming days will bring us greater prosperity or more adversity. Living with this kind of uncertainty need not cause us anxiety or despair. Rather, it should teach us to leave our future in the hands of God. Most of us would prefer to control our own destiny. Instead, we should entrust our lives to the, one, to the loving care of our sovereign God. If we do this, we will be well prepared for both the good days and the bad days. In his comments on this verse, Martin Luther gave the following pastoral advice. Enjoy the things that are present in such a way that you do not base your confidence on them as though they're going to last forever. Luther said, but reserve part of your heart for God so that with it we can bear the day of adversity. Boy, we can be very thankful, very thankful that God did, make, did not make this world oh so good that we might fall and stumble into love with it. The crook in the lot, it is a gift from our Lord to keep our heart focused on Him. We can be thankful for the crook in the lot. I stopped by a store early this, this week and uh, to pick up you know, one of my favorite caffeinated beverages. And the attendant who I'd gotten to know and like a little, nice gal, had, had just come off an 18-hour shift the previous day and now she was starting another. It was like 5 a.m. Nobody else in the store. I could hear the pain in her voice. She said she was barely able to endure the treadmill of life any longer. I asked her, can you imagine, can you imagine if we never died but had to perpetually live in this fallen condition throughout all eternity? 
just shook her head. And I said, this is why we anxiously await the return of Christ. We're looking for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The crook in our lot keeps us focused on Christ throughout all of our lives. The crook in our lot makes room for God. I live a very blessed life, very thankful for all that I enjoy, but this passage reminds me to thank God for the crooks in my lot. And most of our days, they're, they're going to bring prosperity. We'll be able to sing with joy, praises to Him. Be happy today. Be happy today. But if tomorrow God throws a crook in your lot, you know exactly how to respond. And living in the Spirit on those days, we can say, I have read Job. I have studied through Ecclesiastes. I've even heard a story about a man named Thomas Boston. And I may not like the situation I'm in. I'm not happy in my heart for what I'm enduring. But I know that God is both great and He is mighty. He has redeemed my soul by the blood of Christ. And this day of adversity, too, will soon pass. And after it does, I will live and reign with Christ when he returns for his beloved church and I will dine with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb, we'll say, all say together, I believe that Christ saved me from my sins. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. The Lord has given and the Lord will take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray.